Life in a Small French Village, Episode 11, Murder. You take a red beet, wrap it in foil and roast it in the fire, said Marcel, a scrawny, wizened man in a grey peaked cap. Then, when the inside is as soft as a baked potato, you eat it with butter and salt. Baked beets are better than baked potatoes any day. Marcel was one of the locals who frequented Madame Joe's bar. He was a former farm worker, a bachelor, and suspicious of outsiders. It took him a year or two to warm up to me and to stop feeling that having a conversation with me was akin to having teeth pulled. I didn't mind his suspicions. Baked or roasted beets are quite as wonderful as he said they were. When I told him that, he warmed. Slightly. Madame Joe, the bar owner, wasn't exactly warm and chatty either. She was, to say the least, taciturn. Did she think women had no place in bars? Perhaps. Or perhaps my being an outsider wouldn't win me prizes in her eyes. But no matter. I often frequented her bar and restaurant. She was the most wonderful cook. And every day at midday, there was only one dish served. The specialty of the day. And it was always excellent. Of course, my foreignness was emphasised on the day to very camp Canadian gallery owners, Jack and Larry, came to visit me in the village and said they wanted to eat in the restaurant. With their earrings, Jack with his coal-ringed eyes and blue eye shadow, and their loud squabbling as we made our way on foot down my road toward the café, they did draw attention. There was no curtain twitching, People, Mary Paul, Lagros, Dracula, Madame Sawicki, Madame Piedbeuf, the Moroccan, and the Algerian, all came out of their houses to stare unashamedly as we passed. Monsieur Joe behind his bar gawked when we entered. Madame Joe came out from her kitchen to gawk. The others in the bar stared in fascinated silence. You could have heard a dust moat drop. It was that quiet. But this was the 1980s, and within ten years, village life would change radically. Campy characters with earrings seen on television would no longer seem so unusual. Local society would change, and local characters would disappear. The first to go was Marcel. The woman who inherited the house Marcel had lived in for the last 40 years now announced she wanted to renovate the place and sell it. He would have to leave. He was crushed. Where would he go? There were no other places to rent in the village, certainly none that resembled his dwelling, with its iron stove, its open hearth that he still used for cooking, its quarry-tile floors, and its comforting simplicity. There was also the long garden filled with flowers and vegetables that he'd cultivated for years. And since Marcel had no money to purchase a house, the only thing he could do was accept relocation to social housing in an ugly yellow apartment block in the town that was ten kilometres away. Without a car, 
he would lose touch with cronies he had known all his life, also with Madame Jo, her bar, and the village life that was his anchor. In other words, relocation would be disastrous. I'll die if I have to live in a place like that, he said. But he had no choice. He was moved out. Three months later, he was dead. His former house was modernized, modified into something ugly, something that very much resembled the yellow cement apartment block he had been condemned to live in. Marcel's removal was just the first sign that old folks would soon become invisible. Once, they had been easy to meet in the bars, in the local clubs, or sitting on benches chatting. Others were like Madame Sawicki, who often stood in the corner of her yard, observing all, giving advice, and inviting those she liked for coffee and cake. Traditionally, older people shared the family house with sons or daughters and their spouses. But modern life was making it clear that things were to be otherwise now. There was no longer any place for older people in domestic life. There was little tolerance for their foibles or views. So they too left the village for retirement homes. A new generation of retirees in good health came from the cities and moved into the village. These incomers didn't want to socialise in the village. They travelled on bus tours, group tours, day outings. They had friendships outside the village. And when no longer capable, they too were moved into retirement homes. The new housing development was finally built on the mayor's rezoned land. But those who moved in wanted nothing to do with locals and were indifferent to village life. They came from the city, and unlike those who bought older houses, they ignored the locals, staying only amongst those who, like themselves, lived in the look-alike new houses. We know we all share the same values, said one woman to me when she and her husband reluctantly accepted an invitation to a welcome dinner given by a friend of mine in the village. The couple did not return the invitation. Local bars like Madame Joe's, where people met after work, exchanged news and passed on information, began closing. Monsieur and Madame Joe retired and no one took the place. The bar and restaurant where, many years and several owners before, I had been served tomato sauce filled with dead flies, closed, never to reopen. The village shop with its bar also closed, a closure made inevitable by the construction of a huge supermarket and shopping centre in the nearest town. And eventually, supermarkets became places where you met your neighbours and chatted in the aisles, in between the rows of packaged goods. And in the evenings, instead of exchanging news, people now sat in front of television sets and received the official version of what was going on in the world. Of course, there were still local, unofficial, often colourful versions of events, but these were unlikely to hit the national or international media. One such was a local murder, something quite unheard of in this village, although one very distant field 
was known as the Hangman's Field, but no one knew why now. Our local murder story was this. Monsieur Blanchard was a retired man who lived alone in an isolated house just outside the village. It was the postman who discovered his body. Until recent years, the postman often looked in on those who lived in isolated houses, or those who were elderly, just to make certain things were all right. Nowadays, the post office demands this service be paid for. When Blanchard didn't answer the postman's knock, he tried opening the door, found it unlocked, then discovered Blanchard's body in the kitchen. We later heard that Blanchard had received a severe blow to his head. His house had obviously been searched as well, and his mattress had been slit open. Obviously, there were some who still believed that people sewed gold coins or fortunes into their mattresses. No one was arrested immediately, so rumour ran wild. Monsieur Bordelais claimed it had been foreign thieves who had robbed Blanchard. This theory was confirmed by Monsieur Durieux, who added that it was common knowledge that Blanchard had money, despite his simple lifestyle. Madame Griffon said she wasn't surprised at all at the murder. Blanchard had been an obnoxious old man, rude and mean. Of course, she added, that didn't mean he had to be killed. Madame Pierboeuf, on the other hand, said he had been a charming gentleman, that it had no doubt been the gypsies passing through the village that had murdered him. The funeral attracted a huge crowd of rubberneckers, despite the icy weather. Probably far more than if Blanchard had died of natural causes. And it was carried out in the usual manner. A long procession to the church followed, on foot, the coffin that had been placed on a flatbed trailer normally used for hay, and was towed by a tractor. A few days later, I found Durieux and Bordelais in deep, mumbled conversation on the village square. They looked very self-satisfied. I approached, aware that self-satisfied folk certainly do like sharing all they know with any listener. You see the submarine car? Durieux asked me. I must have stared at him and at Bordelais in a particularly stupid way. The what? Submarine car, said Bordelais quite loudly, as if yelling at a backward foreigner would somehow jam understanding into their slow mental apparatus. Submarine car? I've never heard of a submarine car. Both stared at me. Their faces showed pity, warring with infinite patience. You saw the police car parked outside the church during the funeral, didn't you? No, I didn't. I didn't go to the funeral. I didn't know Blanchard. Everyone went, said Durieux, disapproval clear in his voice. But I never met the man. Why would I go? Durieux shook his head. Well, if you'd gone, you'd have seen the submarine car. But I still don't understand what a submarine car is. It's a police car, said Bordelais. On the roof of the car is a small lid, and when the police want to film something, the lid opens, 
and a periscope comes out, just like on a submarine. Only in a police car, the periscope has a camera inside. When they've finished filming, the periscope goes back down into the car. The lid closes and the police take the film to the station and watch it to see who looks guilty. Oh, that's right. And at Blanchard's funeral, the police use the periscope to film people who are attending without them knowing it. Are you sure about this? It sounded very odd to me. I'd never seen a police car with a periscope. Of course we're sure. They were getting huffy now. Who was I to doubt insider knowledge? Did you actually see the periscope? Of course we did. Both of us did. We saw the lid open, and we saw the periscope come out. Oh, I said once again, although I did wonder how the police could actually film people without them noticing. A periscope sticking out of a car roof would certainly be quite visible. Even Durieux and Bordelais had seen it. Around a week later, Georges Pinault, a young man who lived in town with Blanchard's niece, was arrested for the murder. And the story was the usual sordid one. Penot had gone to see Blanchard to ask him for money to buy Christmas presents for his girlfriend's two children. He had spent his own savings on alcohol. Blanchard refused. It wasn't the first time Penot had asked for money. Furious, Penot had pushed the elderly man, who had fallen backwards and hit his head on a counter. He had died immediately. Yes, Penno admitted he had slit the mattress and looked for money, but he hadn't found anything. After the arrest, Madame Griffon announced that villagers could again sleep soundly in their beds. Madame Pierre-Boeuf looked less certain. As for Bordelais and Durieux, when I next saw them both, they looked smug. You see, they caught the murderer. What did we tell you about the submarine car? Well, what does the submarine car have to do with it? That's how they caught him. Pinot came to the funeral. The police filmed his reactions with the periscope camera, and that's how they knew who was guilty. I did begin examining police cars, but I never saw little traps in the roof. Perhaps they were well camouflaged, I thought. It was only some time later when I happened to be in the local police station getting information that would help me write a mystery book when I remembered some marine cars and decided to ask about them. Did they really exist? The officer I was speaking to looked at me very oddly indeed. What is a submarine car, he asked. A police car with a periscope that comes out of a lid in the roof. It's used to film people. He stared at me silently for a minute or two, perhaps wondering how deranged I really was, or perhaps how stupid. Madame, he said finally, I've never heard of a police car with a trapdoor and a periscope. If we want to film anyone, we can do it while we're sitting comfortably in our seats in the car. Police cars do have windows, you know.